Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. On today's episode, we're going to learn about the movie Les Miserables. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. Les Mis is based on the Victor Hugo novel. By definition, a novel is not supposed to be a true story. And you're right. But this this actually holds a special place for me. You see, it's because of Les Mis that this podcast exists. After seeing the musical version with my wife one day, I spent the entire drive home looking up things about the French Revolution to find out how much of the things that we had just seen on stage actually happened. So when I was thinking about starting this podcast, it was years later, but that car ride came back to mind, and hence this podcast. Now, as I've alluded to just now, there are multiple different versions of Les Mis, both on stage as well as film adaptations. But for the purposes of our discussion today, we're mostly going to be focusing on the 1998 adaptation starring Liam Neeson, Jeffrey Rush, Uma Thurman, and Claire Danes. To help us separate fact from fiction, I'm excited to be joined today by Maurice Samuels, the Betty Jane Anlian Professor of French at Yale University. He is also the author of a brand new book that was just released today called The Betrayal of the Duchess, the scandal that unmade the Bourbon monarchy and made France modern. Before we get Maurice on the line, though, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the story behind Les Mis is a call to arms for a revolution. Number two, the love affair between Jean Valjean and Fantine hinted at in the movie is not in the book. Number three, the left-wing Republicans we saw fighting on the barricades in Les Mis were not the only ones fighting at the time. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Maurice on the line to chat about the history behind Les Miserables. Before diving into some details, let's start with some of the main characters in Les Mis. Do we know if Jean Valjean, Inspector Javert, Cosette, or any of the main characters are based on real people? First, Dan, let me say that I'm, I'm really happy to be doing this podcast. I just taught a class devoted to Les Miserables, the novel, and we read the whole novel by Victor Hugo. And I actually worked in Hollywood for a couple of years before I went to grad school. So this totally is allowing me to uh, nerd out on my two favorite things, so 19th century French history and movies. So, yeah. But the answer to your question, whether Hugo based his characters on real life, is loosely. So throughout his life, Victor Hugo actually kept a journal called Thing Scene of just little vignettes he had observed in the street. And one of those had a prostitute who got a man shoved snow down her dress, and he saw her get arrested for that. And that, of course, happens to Fantine in both the novel and the movie. And he also records having seen a poor man in rags 
get arrested for stealing a loaf of bread. And that, of course, happens to Jean Valjean in the movie. But on a deeper level, the character of Jean Valjean was partially inspired by a really fascinating real-life reformed criminal named Vidocq, who wrote memoirs at the time and who Victor Hugo knew. Vidocq was actually born, unlike Jean Valjean, who was born to a very poor family, he was born to a middle-class family. He turned to crime early on. Uh, his first crime was stealing his family's silverware, which is what Jean Valjean does in the book and the movie. Um, he was sent to prison. He managed to escape. This happened a couple times. He escaped and then started a very successful business under an assumed name, which is what happens in the book and the movie. But then he was caught again, sentenced to prison. And this is where it gets really interesting because he decided to reform while he was in jail and become an informant for the police. And so he becomes like a spy in prison. And then they release him because of this. And he then becomes, he founds the security brigade for the Paris police and also ran a very successful private detective agency. And he's seen as really the founder of modern criminology. So strangely, the same character and becomes a model for both Jean Valjean and for Javert. So, which is an incredible thing. That's fascinating that one one person would take that almost complete 180 turn there and become Javert <laughs> almost as well. Exactly. And there's actually one more little possible real life source for a character, which is a childhood friend of Victor Hugo's, who was born to actually a pretty rich family, but then kind of turned to a life of crime, got sent to jail, and then um, kept milking Hugo for money for many years. And he becomes, I think, a model for the character of Thénardier, the kind of corrupt innkeeper who keeps Cosette and then keeps blackmailing Fantine. Um, I actually got that information from David Bellos's book, uh, The Novel of the Century. Wow. I guess I didn't realize that, that Hugo just kept notes on everyday life and then basing characters off, off that. Yeah, well, Hugo thought of himself as a genius. He was a, an incredible genius, everybody thought. So I think he was very sensitive to the fact that anything he wrote or observed would have monumental importance. And so that book, though, wasn't published until after his death of the things he had seen. Heading back to the movie, at, at the very beginning, we see Jean Valjean as a prisoner, of course, the now famous number 24601. And I, I didn't notice this in the 1998 version of Les Mis, but there's other versions of the story. And we find out that he's there because he stole some bread. I believe he was imprisoned and forced to do hard labor for that offense. But then after he was released on parole, he tries to escape. He breaks parole, according to Inspector Javert, and that offense is punishable by life in prison. That's the way that the dialogue uh, goes there. Can you speak to how realistic those punishments would have been? Would, would people sent to prison for almost two decades just for stealing bread and then in prison for life for breaking parole? Yeah, those punishments were pretty realistic. So you could get, you know, five years of hard labor for stealing even something pretty small. Jean Valjean then gets many more years in prison for trying to escape, which was definitely true also. And the conditions in prison were awful. So you were sent to this prison colony in Toulon in the south of France, which is kind of a naval yard. And, you know, so what they, uh, you know, show him like breaking rocks, that was pretty realistic. 
And then if you, it's true that if you committed another offense, you could often get life in prison, which is what happens to that poor guy who's wrongly thought to be Jean Valjean. And he stole some apples in the, in the novel that fell off a tree. So you can't really think of anything more minor than that. But he was being threatened with life in prison because it was his second offense. And of course, the injustices of the criminal system are one of the main things that Hugo is trying to argue against in the novel, trying to really make people aware of how unfair the system is, how it's rigged against the, the poor. Do we know if after the novel came out, were people more, were their eyes open to just how unfair a lot of that was? Did it actually start to cause some change? Yeah, I don't have any direct, any evidence of a direct cause and effect that the novel came out and they changed things. But yes, things did liberalize throughout the 19th century. This is one of, this, I think we have to think about this novel a little bit like Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which, you know, was credited with sparking the Civil War, with making people aware of the injustices of slavery. Uh, this is around the same time. It's a little bit after. And I think it, Hugo is trying to do the same thing in this novel to make people sympathetic, playing on people's sympathy through his stories. And that's that's one of the goals. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Even though the movie doesn't really give any dates, again, I'm speaking about the 1998 movie, it doesn't really give dates to let us know when things are happening. We do know that the story takes place between 1815 and 1832. There's one scene that caught my ear, and it happened when we see Liam Neeson's version of Jean Valjean. He goes to trial of a man accused to be him, like you mentioned earlier. In that trial, while he's proving who he is to free the other man, Valjean points to a tattoo on one of his former prison mates. And according to Valjean, that tattoo is the date of the revolution, 1789. Now, that's before the timeline of the movie itself. And not to spoil the storyline later, but we also see revolutionaries in the film later on. So can you give a little more historical context between these two different revolutions mentioned in the movie in both 1789 and 1832? From my experience, one of the most common misconceptions about the movie or people who've seen the musical, for example, think that it's taking place during the French Revolution, which is to say the revolution of 1789. 
that was the big revolution that everyone knows with the storming of the Bastille and the reign of terror and all that stuff. That was the revolution that ended basically a thousand years of monarchy by killing the king. But that is not the one that this story is about. So what people don't realize normally is that the revolution of 1789 was really the beginning of a century of revolutions in France. So it's a little complicated, but interesting. And I can give like just a thumbnail sketch here of what happened. So the revolution of 1789 basically ended when Napoleon, who had been a revolutionary general, took power. He declared empire and became a kind of dictator. Napoleon was overthrown after his defeat at Waterloo in 1815, which is when the story of Les Miserables begins. So after Waterloo, the other European countries who had defeated France reimposed the Bourbon monarchy on France. Uh, they, that was the, the royal family that had been kicked out by the revolution of 1789 or, or killed. So the Bourbons then remained in power between 1815 and 1830. And this period is called the Restoration because it was a restoration of the Bourbon monarchs. And it was an incredibly reactionary period as those former kings tried to pretend like the revolution had never happened. They pushed things a bit too far, though, their reactionary policies, and they were overthrown by another revolution in 1830. And this is the period that we're in when the revolt takes place. So in 1830, the left-wing revolutionaries wanted to establish a democratically elected republic. And they were actually called Republicans, who, unlike our Republicans today, uh, were very on the left. So these radical Republicans eventually, after the Revolution of 1830, wound up compromising by accepting a more liberal king, Louis-Philippe, who was a cousin of the Bourbons. So everyone thinks he's going to be better. This is the kind of compromise thing. He starts to reign in July of 1830. Now, what happens, though, is pretty quickly, the left-wing Republicans grow dissatisfied with Louis-Philippe and start to plot against him. Uh, pretty quickly after the revolution of 1830. And the rebellion depicted in Les Miserables is one of their attempts to spark another revolution. So it fails miserably. Uh, again, sorry for the, the spoiler there. But they kept trying. And eventually, they did manage to overthrow Louis-Philippe during the revolution of 1848. So it's strange that Hugo would have chosen to make this relatively minor and failed revolt, the one from 1832, the centerpiece of his novel, rather than one of the more successful revolutions of 1830 or 48. But I have a couple theories about that. 1830 was a bloodless and kind of undramatic revolution with very little actual fighting. Basically, the Bourbons just fled at the first sign of trouble. Um, and 1848 was still really kind of too fresh in people's minds when Hugo published the novel in 1861 and too controversial, really. So I think 1832 seemed like a good event to use as the centerpiece because it was so minor that he could make it mean what he wanted it to mean. But I think people who were reading the book when it came out in the 1860s probably would have had the revolution of 1848 in mind and would have known that the revolutionaries who are failing in 1832 
would eventually succeed in getting rid of Louis Philippe. And if I can just say one more thing, because you mentioned that tattoo on the prisoner's arm in the Liam Neeson 1998 movie, it uh, you know says 1789. Strangely, that's wrong. I don't know why they decided to change that. In the novel, the tattoo says March 1st, 1815, which is the day that Napoleon returned from exile, his first exile, and recaptured France for 100 days. This was what led to Waterloo. So really, the prisoner with the tattoo was not a revolutionary. He was a Bonapartist. So he would have supported the great hero, Napoleon. And I don't know exactly why they changed that. Maybe they just didn't want to introduce the confusion of Napoleon and or maybe just remind people of the revolution of 1789. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, before the revolution happens in the movie, there's a scene where we see the character of Marius speaking to a crowd, and he says that the king has declared writing a crime, and they've destroyed the newspaper. He goes on to say, being poor is a crime, and the king has betrayed us. Where's the republic our fathers died for? Was writing declared a crime, and how did people feel the king betrayed them? In fact, it was censorship of the press that really sparked the revolution of 1830 that brought Louis Philippe to power. So the revolution, the Republicans who led that, that revolt were really angry when six months after Louis Philippe came to power, he restored a form of censorship. And it became illegal, especially one of the things that he declared was that it was illegal to insult the king. And political cartoons, especially depicting Louis Philippe, were explicitly forbidden. And this is kind of a funny story. So one of the leading caricaturists of the time was this guy named Charles Philippon. Uh, and he was put on trial in 1831 for having depicted the king. And in order to defend himself, he drew a series of caricatures of or pictures of pairs and saying that really anything could look like the king. And in fact, Louis-Philippe did look like a pear. So he had big jowls and these mutton-chopped sideburns. And so that the, the Repub left-wing Republicans seized on that picture of Louis-Philippe as a pear. And that became, all of a sudden, pears went up all over the, the walls of Paris. On every street, you could see pears. And it drove Louis Philippe totally crazy. But Philippon was trying to argue that you can't, you know, anything could be uh, considered a caricature of the king. So Louis Philippe came to be known as the Pear King. And it was this war over words and images that Marius is referring to in that scene in the novel. So that this was a total hot button issue at the time. I could just see how that would just get under his skin and just make him upset being the Pear King. <laughs> And if you Google a picture of Louis Philippe, you'll see why they picked it there. One, one thing kind of to help set a little more of the context of the film there. One thing that I noticed was there's a lot of identity papers being checked everywhere. When Jean Valjean is the mayor of a small town and Inspector Javert arrives, one of the first things he does is show his papers to the mayor. When Valjean and Cosette sneak into Paris, the police set up a blockade to force people to show their papers. Later, Javert shows his papers to the French troops so he can get past the lines to try and find Jean Valjean and Cosette. Was it common in that time to have to show identity papers all the time? Yes and no. 
so the the idea of identity papers were was really a product of the revolution of 1789 and it was meant to control emigration so people fleeing like especially nobles who were trying to flee from France and then later to manage conscription in the army so they did start to have a more uh, robust system of identification it was definitely true that in the 19th century, so, you know, at the time that the story is taking place, you needed a passport to travel even within the country. So the idea was that you would get your passport from your local mayor, you would then present it to the mayor of the town you were going to. But the thing is, it was not really always observed. So in the movie, especially, they, you know, they act like everyone was constantly showing their identity papers. And that's kind of an exaggeration. I think it allows them in the movie to up the stakes of Jean Valjean trying to get into Paris, and it makes it kind of more dramatic. That we don't see in the novel. And that, you know, he didn't really have to show his papers a lot of times. That's what allowed him to come in and out of Paris constantly. One thing that was definitely true that we see in the movie is that prisoners, when they got released from prison, got a special yellow passport. And that they did have to show where they had to be in a certain town at a certain time, show their passport. And that part is definitely true. Okay. Okay. When I was watching that and with all the papers, one of the first things that came to mind, of course, we see this in a lot of other movies, like, oh, I'm going to I'm just forge the papers. And so I was thinking, well, if if it's that important, then surely somebody at some point would have figured out that, hey, we can start to fake some of these. And Yeah. And at that time, I mean, if you you know think about it, this is before photography. So photography doesn't get invented until like the 1830s. And they don't really have, you know, and then it's like a kind of long exposure to daguerreotype. So they're not able to really trace individual bodies in that way. So it's a, a kind of loose system until much later in the 19th century. So really, after 1870, you start getting a much more developed uh, system of surveillance and identity control in France. That hadn't really happened yet by the time this takes place in the 1820s and 30s. Now, anytime I see numbers in a movie, it's kind of low-hanging fruit to start to see how accurate it is. And in the movie, there was this big contrast between the French authorities and the revolutionaries during the planning stages. Now, it's only in the dialogue, but there's this one scene where Javert, he's among the French authorities, and he's saying that they'll have 24,000 troops in the city, and those troops will be reinforced with an additional 30,000 within two days. And then there's another scene with the revolutionaries, where they start to talk about how they need to make plans for the next day, the day of the revolution. Now, in my mind, that it tells me that a lot of this seemed to be last minute, going up against a pretty significant force. Can you give a little more historical background of these two sides and how the movie portrays them? Yeah, so this part is pretty accurate, actually. So historical records show that there were around 3,000 rioters in June 1832, versus about 30,000 government troops and National Guardsmen. So that's pretty true. The revolutionaries were vastly outnumbered, and they knew it. Their hope, though, was that the people of Paris would rally to the cause of revolution. So that was the idea, that they would spark the revolution, 
and then the populace would join them on the barricades. And that had happened during the revolution of 1789 to a lesser extent, and it happened in 1830, and it would happen again in 1848. But unfortunately for them, it did not happen in 1832. And that was one of the reasons that the revolution was put down relatively easily by the government. So, and as for planning, there were, there were revolutionary clubs that were going on in the novel and the movie. They refer to the, the friends of the ABC, which is the ABC, um, that had been plotting for a while. And it's true that there were these like revolutionary clubs all over the place that were, that were trying to bring down Louis Philippe. Hmm. Was there something different about, I mean, cause I'm wondering why people would not have gone with the revolution this time when they did previously? It's a good question. I think it's possible that they just hadn't done enough organizing at the time. The conditions just weren't quite right then. There were other bigger revolts, like right around this time, the silk workers in Lyon also had a big rebellion. And that was a bigger deal. And that took more effort to suppress. I think that one had a better chance of turning into a bigger revolution, except that in, in, in France, it's such a centralized country that they were used to looking to Paris for leadership. So really, every revolution that worked wound up coming out of, out of Paris. Okay. I wonder if maybe when they're showing all this happening last minute with their preparations, maybe that's kind of one of the ways that they're trying to imply that why it failed is because it, they didn't, weren't able to get the word out or whatever that may be. Yeah, that's true. It, it did have a much more spontaneous character. But, you know, you could say that the same thing happened in 1830. So when the Bourbon King reimposed censorship from like one day to the next, uh, a few newspapers put out a kind of call to arms. And then there was a kind of spontaneous revolt that did work at that point. Well, heading back to the movie, the revolutionaries mentioned something about how they can't let the king bury Lamarck as his hero. So when they try to bury Lamarck, we'll bury them instead is the dialogue, something like that. Uh, Jean Valjean later explains to Cosette that the king is trying to claim Lamarck as his own hero, and that's a lie. It's the final insult, and that's why they're angry. So the movie clearly indicates that this is part of the revolution, but it doesn't really go into a lot of detail there. So who was Lamarck, and was the movie correct in suggesting that he had something to do with the revolution? Yeah, so this is basically correct also. General Lamarck was a hero of the Napoleonic Wars. And then he became a hero of the revolutionaries because during the restoration period, so 1815 to 1830, he spoke out loudly against the Bourbons' reactionary policies during that period. So he became a hero for the revolutionaries. But what's missing from the movie is the context here, how he died. This is actually pretty interesting, especially for our own moment right now. Because in 1832, there was a global cholera pandemic, and people had no idea what caused the disease. Now we know it's caused by a bacteria that is like contaminated water and food. But at the time, there was widespread panic. So over the course of a few months in, 18, in the spring of 1832, 20,000 people in Paris died out of a population of 650,000. And across the whole country in France, 100,000 people died. 
And there was actually really a lot of class warfare around this because the mortality rates were higher in the poor neighborhoods. And so the rich thought that the poor were spreading disease and they mostly fled to their country houses. And the poor actually thought that the rich were trying to poison them. So it was really, there was a lot of class tension and social panic at this time. So one of the most high-profile deaths from cholera was the prime minister, this guy, Casimir Perrier, who was a, a conservative, and he was really hated by the common people. So when he dies, he gets a state funeral. Lamarck, the people's hero, died of cholera on June 1st, 1832, at the height of the epidemic when these tensions were running really high. So what happened, this is a little bit distorted by the movie. In real life and in the novel, the revolutionaries try to hijack the funeral procession of Lamarck and bring his coffin to the Pantheon, which is where it was this former church where France buried its greatest heroes. But Louis-Philippe was not going to bury Lamarck there. The people wanted him to. So that's what sparked the rebellion. Although there were, you know, deeper causes, as I was saying, like dissatisfaction with Louis-Philippe's policies that were behind it. But it's true that this funeral of Lamarck was the immediate pretext for the revolt. Okay, it kind of gave an event that they were going to time things around and base it. Yeah, and actually they had been planning, so the, the revolutionaries, and we're talking about like a, a relatively small group of rebels here, had been looking for a pretext, and they were actually planning to do it around someone else's funeral. But then Lamarck happened to die, and that was an even better pretext for them. Hmm. Interesting. I was going to say that maybe that would be why it was, seemed to be so last minute. But if they were planning to do it anyway on around somebody else's, then it wasn't necessarily the case. They just took advantage of the, the timing. Exactly. Yeah. Some of the more iconic imagery that we see from Les Mis, both in the movie and the musicals and pretty much every version of it, are the barricades and the fighting in the streets. Uh, one side, you have sandbags and carts the barricades from the revolutionaries. They're kind of set up in random streets in Paris. I don't know that the specific locations are really a focus in the story. But then on the other side, you see organized sandbags, uniforms, troops behind them. Things look a little more put together on this side from the French authorities. And overnight, the troops advance on the barricades. They're driven back. Then in the morning, the troops use cannons to shoot down the barricades. And it's pretty easy. <laughs> and as I was watching that, it's like, why didn't they just use the cannons to begin with? It seemed like it was so easy just the second time. But how well did the movie do depicting the battles in the streets of Paris? Not bad, I would say, although a few discrepancies, which I'll come through here. So barricades uh, were definitely a characteristic of Parisian revolts going back to the 16th century, even. So as soon as um, riots started, barricades would go up in the streets of Paris. And you have to remember that before the 1850s, Paris was kind of a medieval city. It didn't have, for the most part, these big, wide boulevards that we have today. Those were a product of the 1850s, partly to prevent barricades from going up. 
So there were mostly these small kind of narrow streets that were easy to barricade. And the idea was that rebels, you know, put up these barricades to prevent police from advancing into their neighborhoods. And especially, it really was very effective. Barricades were really effective stopping mounted police, so stopping horses. And those were the main sources of crowd control at the time. We actually see that in the movie, too. So basically, as soon as riots started, the police would send the cavalry in to kind of just ride into the crowd. And that was terrifying. So barricades were pretty effective at stopping that. But it's a good question why the army didn't just use cannons from the beginning. So in reality, most of the barricades were pretty easily overtaken without cannons. But there was a little more to it than that, actually. So so cannons would have been effective at destroying almost all the barricades, except for the biggest at the time. But there were reasons why I think that the army didn't want to use them. And I'm partially getting this from Mark Trogett's book, The Insurgent Barricade, which is, if you're interested, a really good history of barricade fighting in France. So for one thing, there are a lot of innocent people in their houses. So it's like, you know, kind of hard to fire a cannon in the streets of Paris. You know, you're going to kill, you're going to destroy a lot of buildings. But probably more importantly, from a strategic standpoint, what would happen is if their barricade was destroyed, the rebels could just easily disappear either into the surrounding streets or into the neighboring buildings. And they're not wearing uniforms, so they could just blend in with the crowd. So basically what would happen is if the army fired a cannon, destroyed the barricade, it didn't actually do anything because the people would know that was they were about to do that. They would just disappear and move on to the next barricade. And by moving on to the next barricade, they would draw the army into these narrow streets. And then what would happen is the rebels or sometimes even just normal people would fire guns at them from the upstairs windows of these streets or even throw like boiling oil on them or throw furniture on them and stuff like that. So, you know, for one thing, it didn't really get the rebels and it could be really dangerous anyway for the army. And in fact, I think that the movie shows that just as a convenient way to kind of lead to a climax and end the movie. In the book, it's much more, I think, realistic. So you see them that they, the army basically, basically has to storm the barricade. For the most part, they kill some people there. The rebels then disappear into the surrounding houses. They have to kind of track them into the houses. And you see a lot of people getting shot in like the courtyards of houses in the book. That's a great explanation. I could definitely see now how it would be the movie just trying to speed things up and give a little bit of a, a summary of it all. And we see that happen a lot in movies where they're trying to condense the timeline and trying to just show bits and pieces. Yeah, they're not imagining there are going to be people like you saying, wait, why didn't they just do that from the beginning? They could have solved all of their problems. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I guess that's fair. <laughs> now, one of the primary plot points throughout the entire movie is that we see Chief Inspector Javert trying to catch Jean Valjean. And he always seems to be just a step behind in this little game of cat and mouse that goes on for almost two decades, 19 years, according to some versions of Les Mis. Near the end of the movie, Javert is captured by the revolutionaries. He's going to be killed. Valjean ends up saving Javert's life by letting him go. Then 
it's very emotional at the end of the movie. Javert recognizes that Valjean will never uh, be able to stop looking over his shoulder as long as he's still alive. So he writes a letter to the prefect to explain what happened to the prisoner, and then he takes Valjean's place. He sacrifices his own life so that Valjean can continue to live his. Now, I know you mentioned earlier that there's a possible historical the being the same person of Valjean and, and Jovert, but is there any historical evidence that there's this prolonged search that culminates in a police officer willing to give his own life for a prisoner? Yeah, so this actually is exactly what happens in the novel, but to my knowledge, it's a total fabrication. So this did not happen. But it fits perfectly, I think, with what Hugo was trying to do in the novel, which is to model a kind of Christian ethics as a solution to social strife at the time. So if you think of the bishop at the beginning of the story, who after being robbed of his silverware by Jean Valjean, turns the other cheek and gives him his silver candle, his uh, silver, silver candlesticks. This has a profound effect on Jean Valjean, who then consecrates himself to God and to doing good work for the rest of his life. So Javert in the story is someone who only understands black and white, right and wrong. So you're either on the side of the criminals or you're on the side of the police. He's not a bad person, I don't think, but he's an inflexible one. And he can't understand a concept like forgiveness. So when Jean Valjean spares his life at the barricade, it kind of shatters Javert's worldview. He learns the lesson, though, and decides to let Jean, Jean Valjean go free. But that's not a world he can live in himself. Um, so that's why he commits suicide. And it's the moral culmination of the, the kind of moral climax of the novel. But did it happen in real life? I really doubt it. Although Hugo um, surely hoped, as I said before, that his novel would spark some pangs of conscience in people like Javert, who were just only could understand criminals and good people. They couldn't understand that some criminals could actually be good people or learn to be good people, could reform. So the prisons really were not trying to reform people at all, like some prisons claim to do these days. No, no. There, there was a movement for prison reform, but certainly where Jean Valjean was in, in Toulon was not one of those kinds of prisons. And often they would lock people up for just being poor. You know, you could get sentenced to prison for debts also at, at the time. And, you know, insane people would be locked up sometimes in the same places and the conditions were just pretty appalling. I always thought that was a circular logic where you have somebody go to prison for being in debt and then you can't pay off the debt because you're in prison. And so it just gets even worse and worse and worse. And it's like, well, you're not really trying to get people to pay off these debts then because they can't while they're in prison. Yeah, this was really a time when things were rigged <laughs> to use kind of contemporary language for the 1%, you know, at the time. I mean, this was, and they did it nakedly. The laws were seen as serving the interests of property holders at the time. And so Hugo is really, this is one of the, the reasons this novel was so important to so many people at the time. 
it was really a kind of cry into the darkness to try to get people to change some of these policies, but not preaching revolution. And that's, I think, one of the other kind of misconceptions of the novel is that uh, about the, this this story is that you could come away just watching the movie or the musical and think that the novel is really advocating armed revolt. It's not really. It's actually advocating this kind of Christian ethics and forgiveness and let's just be nicer to people and then we won't have to revolt. So I think that it's important to make that distinction too. That's a very good distinction because I definitely, first time I, I watched it, I came away thinking that, okay, this is a movie about the French Revolution and it's talking about these people that are trying to get some of their rights back and call to arms essentially was the overall message. It's interesting because in the, in the novel, what happens is that, you know, Marius survives the destruction of the barricade because Jean Valjean escapes with him through the sewers of Paris. But then he winds up marrying Cosette and basically becoming a self-satisfied bourgeois middle-class guy. So if you think about the musical version, he sings this beautiful song called Empty Chairs at Empty Tables, where he's mourning his lost friends. And you get the sense that he's really going to keep fighting until justice is, is done. Actually, in the novel, there's like a couple sentences where he's like, yeah, it's really too bad about my friends. And then he basically becomes you know, this like happy, self-satisfied rich guy because he uses uh, Cosette's huge dowry and you don't get the sense he's going to be on the barricades anytime soon. So that I think is something that the, the many of the adaptations want us to believe about the characters. And that's not really the case in the novel itself. Hmm, interesting. Now, at the very end of the movie, of course, we met, you mentioned this earlier, the revolution fails. We also see many of the revolutionaries behind the, that were behind the barricades, the soldiers line them up and shoot them. Now, you mentioned earlier kind of what happened with the revolution overall, but what happened to some of the revolutionaries? Were they also involved in the, the next version of the revolution or were they executed if they were captured or how did, how did that turn out for them? The revolution, as I said, failed because the Parisian populace as a whole didn't join in. And the government quickly took control of almost all the barricades that went up during the funeral. So by midnight that night, the rebels only held a couple of barricades, mostly in the eastern part of Paris, in the neighborhood called the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, which was a, a working class neighborhood near the Bastille. So they held out for just until the next day. And then at that time, the, a lot of them got killed in the barricade fighting. The government surely did execute a bunch of people just on the spot. So it seems like from most historians think that about a hundred insurgents died during that fighting or immediately after it, about 200 to 300 more were wounded. And then the government lost many fewer. Um, so this was a, a pretty big defeat for the revolutionaries. But as I said, they didn't give up. And it would take another 16 years or so. But eventually, they did manage to bring down Louis-Philippe in 1848 and establish, at that point, a short-lived republic. 
But it was really only after 1870 that France permanently became a democratic republic. So it keeps going back and forth between kind of monarchy and republic until 1870. Now, we've talked about some myths that have been perpetrated because of the movie or musical versions. Are there any other big ones that you see a lot of people believe because of the movie adaptation, any of the movie adaptations or musical that just isn't true? As I said, I think the big one is this idea that the novel and the story is ultimately like really progressive in, in the sense that we would kind of associate with it, whereas actually it's kind of advocating faith and God as the ultimate solution to society's problems. So I think we would maybe, it's clear that Hugo was a, a real humanitarian, and was really concerned with the plight of the poor. But I think that there is a myth that the novel is more revolutionary than it really was. It's strange because in Soviet Russia, this was like one of the most popular novels, along with like Pushkin's novels, which is a little strange because if you read it closely, it's not actually as revolutionary as we think. So that's one big myth, I think. Another myth, though, is about gender, I think. And this is something that if you read the novel, and I think it also in like the, the musical version, the women are pretty, like Cosette is sort of incapable of having a political idea. You know, these women are kind of depicted as angels of purity who can't really understand big issues and are not trying to rebel and fight back. And it's almost like in the novel, I think they even saved something along the lines of don't bother your pretty little head about these things to Cosette. She's really only interested in, in her love. So this was, I think, not the case in the 1998 Liam Neeson version, partially because Claire Danes is playing Cosette. And she's such a smart and feisty actress. So I think that she kind of presents a much more independent-minded Cosette than is in the novel. But they clearly changed it and probably to cater to modern sensibilities. So you see in the 1998 movie, Cosette rebelling against Jean Valjean and kind of accusing him of like, you're, you know, not letting me do this and, you know, and, and kind of trying to win him to her side and let him, uh, let her see Marius and stuff like that. That is not in the novel. So they, they, the movie definitely makes her much feistier. I think that the novel from a gender equality standpoint is pretty retrograde, even though uh, and it's important to point this out, it saw itself as defending and speaking out against some of the particular ways that women were oppressed. So it definitely is doing that with Fantine and kind of exposing the plight of poor women who are forced into prostitution. That was true for a lot of women at the time. And the novel is definitely, it probably... Hugo saw himself as a feminist now, but certainly by modern standards, there's a lot that's like pretty retrograde about the gender ideology in the novel. Were there others who were trying to tell stories from that perspective during that time, or was that a pretty novel idea and, and just not done very much? There were. So 
one of the most widely read novels and what's clearly a precursor to this novel was a novel by this guy named Eugène Sue, and it was called The Mysteries of Paris. This one was from the 1840s. This was actually the first really successful serial novel published in France, or one of the first. And this novel also, it was about a handsome prince who went undercover in the slums of Paris to try to reward the virtuous poor. So we can see the kind of, and in the process, you know, he, he winds up exposing a lot of social inequalities. The plight of prostitutes was also one of these. But of course, here again, it's a kind of slightly dubious ideology here that only the virtuous poor deserve to be saved and rewarded and it kind of encouraged poor people to be policing themselves. I think Hugo was very influenced by the mysteries of Paris. And we get some of that in the contrast between Jean Valjean and Fantine, who are clearly the virtuous poor who, you know, are forced into crime, quote unquote, like stealing a loaf of bread or becoming a prostitute versus the Thénardiers who are just bad people. And they're there, I think, to show a contrast that there are not all poor people are deserving of our sympathy, but the good ones who are have faith in God and who try to reform themselves, they are, and we should try to save them. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good there's a good contrast between those two that I hadn't really thought about being a central storyline to it. But now that you phrase it that way, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and the Tenardiers are kind of um not as big a feature of the nineteen ninety-eight um movie as they are actually in the musical version, they're big characters, and in the novel they're really big characters also. So yeah. But base but to answer your question, yes. So there were other Hugo was certainly not the first one. There was a whole kind of uh genre of of, of novel that focused on social issues from the time and tried to inspire sympathy for oppressed groups. This was a kind of dominant feature of the novel at the time. And, you know, not just in French literature, as I said, like Uncle Tom's Cabin in American literature was definitely also trying to do the same thing in the same way. If you were directing the 1998 version, is there anything that you wish they had done differently? I'm not a fan, I have to say, of the 1998 movie. Um, but it's not because I don't like movies. And I'm not like against adaptations. I'm not like one of those like, you know, uh, professors who just is like, no, this is wrong. You have to stick to the facts. But, I, you know, I am, I'm a literature professor. And th the 1998 movie just takes a lot of liberties with the story from the novel, including things that I don't even really understand, like changing the names and change, not, not so much of the main characters, but of like the towns and things like that. But the, the real problem for me was that they hint at a love affair between Jean Valjean and Fantine. Which is, um, at one point later in the movie, Jean Valjean tells Cosette, like, I loved your mother. And I think we're supposed to sort of think that if, if Fantine had survived, they would have gotten together. This is really not in the book. And so what's strange, because Victor Hugo himself was, I wouldn't say like a sex addict, but he definitely had a lot of affairs. He had many mistresses, which was pretty common at the time. So he wasn't the only one doing it. But he had like one official mistress who his wife knew about through his whole life and who went into exile with him and plenty of other 
he was a very sexual guy. Whereas the main characters in this movie, Jean Valjean and Fantine, are not in love at all. Jean Valjean basically seems to have no sexual impulses whatsoever uh, in the novel. And then even Marius and Marius and Cosette, the movie shows them sneaking out together and Cosette being able to like get out and like meet him in the street. Definitely not possible at the time. In the book, so this was a time when women could not walk in the streets alone, uh, alone, or they would be considered prostitutes, or at least upper class women, women who were well dressed. So you were, you know, kind of like uh, virginal daughters like Cosette would not have been allowed liberties like that. What happens in the novel is that um, Marius finds a way to sneak into their garden. And so they wind up meeting in the, the protected space of the garden. So anyway, I'm kind of a purist. I would not have um, deviated from the novel that way. I would say, though, that if you want a really good adaptation, in my view, by which I mean one that's really faithful to the novel, check out the BBC, the recent BBC version from a, like maybe one or two years ago, starring Dominic West from The Wire as Jean Valjean. And it aired uh, about a year ago on PBS. That one, I think, is really pretty close, stays pretty close to the novel. But of course, it plays out over multiple episodes. So they have a lot more time to include all this stuff. Whereas I get it that, you know, in the 1998, you know, version, they have basically two hours, they have to kind of condense a lot and change a lot to make it like work as a movie. So I totally get that. But it's just it's a, as a kind of lover of the novel, um, it, it bothered me. Well, sure, but there's some things that don't necessarily take a different amount of time. Like you were talking about earlier, the the date, the tattoo date, things like that. It would change no amount of time whatsoever in the movie to have a different date on there. <laughs> Although you could maybe argue that they just didn't want to mention Napoleon or something because it just sends you down a rabbit hole, you know. So I can't remember exactly, but I feel like in the movie, I don't think Napoleon is is a big deal, whereas in the novel, he's a huge deal. And it's true at the time that everyone was thinking about Napoleon and uh, of the different political factions at the time, a lot of people, especially among the common people, were Bonapartists who wanted to bring back, Napoleon himself died in 1821, but they wanted to bring back his family to rule over France. And that does happen. After 1848, Napoleon's nephew is elected president of the newly founded republic in 1848. And then he, like his uncle, has a coup d'etat and establishes an empire again. So that was definitely in the air. But I think the, the movie probably just didn't want to go there. Leave that for a, a different movie, perhaps. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Les Mis. I know we've been talking about that mostly, but I also know everyone listening to this loves to learn about real history. And Earlier, you did mention the Bourbon Monarchy, and I know you have a brand new book that just released today called The Betrayal of the Duchess. Can you give us a little bit more information about the book and where we can get a copy? Yes, gladly. Uh, so my new book, which, as you said, is called The Betrayal of the Duchess, actually also happens to take place in 1832, the year of the revolt in Les Mis. My book, though, is about an aspect of this period's history that's only barely mentioned in the novel and not at all in the movie. 
So at the same time that the left-wing Republicans were fighting on the barricades in Hugo's story, the right-wing supporters of the Bourbon monarchy also launched a civil war to bring down Louis Philippe's government. They also were hoping to take advantage of the cholera epidemic. And they wanted to actually time their revolt with the left-wing revolt. They thought it would be harder for Louis Philippe to fight on two fronts at once. Their commander was a four foot seven woman, uh, this, the Duchesse de Berry, who was the mother of the Bourbon heir to the throne. And she was a fascinating character, led a guerrilla army and might have succeeded actually in bringing down Louis Philippe, but she was betrayed by her trusted confidant who was Jewish. And this led to the first real outpouring of anti-Semitism in modern France at this time. So it's a really interesting story. As you said, the book comes out today, uh, and it's available from any online bookseller, or you can try to maybe support your local bookstore if they're still open. It's a really hard time for a lot of bookstores, so try to maybe see if they're open and you can order it through them. That's fascinating. I'm sure it dives into a lot more of the things that we talked about, but just a, a completely different perspective. I had no idea that there was this other angle that Philippe had to try to fight the battle at two fronts. Exactly. And that a lot of people actually wanted to bring back the bourbon. So you get the sense watching Les Mis or, you know, even reading the novel that people were all in favor of a republic and it was just a matter. But actually, a lot of people were pretty conservative, uh, all these you know nobles and wanted to bring back the old monarchy. And they thought, you know, this was a really unstable time. Cholera was making everyone really anxious. And a lot of people thought, why not go back to the most conservative old form of government that will lead us, give us stability in this time of crisis. But basically, my book, though, is, is it's a really good story, I think, because she was such a fascinating character. So I just try to really tell this story in, in the book. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Dan. That, this was really fun. Thanks for giving me the chance to talk to you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Marie Samuels once again for taking the time to come onto the show. And if you want to dive deeper into one of the stories around the same time that Les Mis took place, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Maurice has a brand new book out. In fact, if you're listening to this episode on the day it's released, the book was also released. It just came out today. It's called The Betrayal of the Duchess, and you can find it anywhere books are found, or it's a great time to support your local bookstores. If they don't have a copy on the shelves already, then I'm sure they can get it for you. And of course, call them up or order online. Be safe and stay healthy. And also enjoy some fascinating reading at home. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the story behind Les Mis is a call to arms for a revolution. Number two, the love affair between Jean Valjean and Fantine hinted at in the movie is not in the book. Number three, the left-wing Republicans we saw fighting on the barricades in Les Mis were not the only ones fighting at the time. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's kick this off with number one. The story behind Les Mis is a call to arms for a revolution. That is... Well, that's the lie. As Maurice explained, a common misconception about Les Mis is that it's a call to arms for revolutionaries when, in fact, Victor Hugo's novel is 
more trying to advocate faith and God as the ultimate solution to society's problems. And that means number two is true. The love affair between Jean Valjean and Fantine hinted at in the movie is not in the book. Maurice explained near the end there that the hints at a romantic relationship between Fantine and Jean Valjean in the 1998 movie were not in the book at all. And finally, that also means that number three is true. The left-wing Republicans we saw fighting on the barricades in Les Mis were not the only ones fighting at the time. Maurice explained that during the time of the story we saw in Victor Hugo's novel and what was depicted in the movie as well, there was another attempt to bring down Louis Philippe's government launched by the right-wing supporters of the Bourbon monarchy. So even though if we were watching the movie or a musical version of Les Mis, it'd be very easy to get the idea that everybody in France or everybody there really wants to bring down the monarchy and turn France into a republic. And that's not necessarily the case. Not everybody wanted to get rid of mon the monarchy overall. And the woman in command of the guerrilla army attempting to bring down Louis Philippe is the subject of Maurice's new book. So go grab a copy to learn more about that. That just about wraps up this episode. But before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating the episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, but that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. Maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 32 hours to create and cost $46.27 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So it does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the cost for software, if software needs update that's going to cost something, or mo the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside of the writing, researching, and producing of this one episode. Uh, for example, I recently had to rewire some of my equipment, and so that's not necessarily related to this one episode. That's really something that is uh, universal across all of them. So I don't include that time in the 32 hours that it took to create this one episode. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Minisode number 44 was just released last week. And like all the minisodes, each one covers a completely fictional movie and how they use real-world facts and history to make it seem more realistic. For example, the last minisode covers the sci-fi movie Oblivion. And even in a movie like that, even in a sci-fi movie like that, they still use some real-world facts and historical evidence of NASA crafts to help make the story seem more believable. You can get access to that and all the past minisodes along with new minisodes as they're released by supporting the show. It's just a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story a little longer. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre. That's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. 
And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at baseonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.